This season of the VMP Anthology Podcast is sponsored by Marantz. A great balance of warmth and smoothness while maintaining tons of details. It's basically responsible for playing the soundtrack to my childhood. These are real words spoken by real Marantz fans who are some of the most passionate audio lovers in the world. When you spin vinyl on a Marantz turntable connected to a Marantz hi-fi system, you'll understand why Marantz is one of the most legendary hi-fi companies of all time and why their fans are so passionate about that warm, rich, legendary Marantz sound. Check out all the latest Marantz gear at Marantz.com. That's M-A-R-A-N-T-Z.com. Or see what their fans have to say at hashtag WhyMarantz. Welcome back to the fifth episode of VMP Anthology, the story of Stax Records. I'm your host, Andrew Winnestorfer. When we left our last episode, Stax was putting out many, many albums in 1969 to make an instant catalog and try to dig themselves out of the disasters of 1967 and 1968. In this final set of records, we have two albums from 1972, which, as we'll learn from Robert Gordon here, was one of the last good years at Stax. I guess like the soul explosion is this one year and it like it sort of worked. They get the staple singers and that's like their their last like 1972 that uh, be a be altitude respect yourself are like is the last sort of like shining year at Stax. Yes. And it takes a couple of years before like it completely wears off. Yeah. Sort of. Yes and no. Uh, you know, 1972 is a, is a huge year because you've also got Watt Stacks. Mm-hmm. And what I, one of the things I tried to convey in the book is that what 19, what a lot of 1972 was about was Al Bell trying to get the attention of Columbia Records. Mm-hmm. And, and Watt Stacks was a big effort to, to show we are a company that, that can, you know, make r- records, put on concerts, release documentary films release triple album packages Mm -hmm. and and columbia does pay attention al bell wants columbia because columbia has the best distribution of anybody in the world and al bell knows that the more records you can get out there the more you'll sell so if you've you know anybody can record the best song in the world but if you don't have any way for others to hear it then that best song in the world only you know that it's the mm-hmm. best song in the world so distribution's importance can't be overstated and and he does achieve that in 72 but it falls apart very quickly and and begins the spiral that's going to take two three four years uh to to finally unravel stacks Mm -hmm. and they got caught up in the it was clive davis right in the like where he he got pushed out of columbia because they realized he was expensing airplanes for his girlfriend (laughs) yeah (laughs) uh he paid for part of his son's bar mitzvah through company funds Mm -hmm. you know things like that and um and that and clive davis gets kicked out three months after the deal is uh agreed upon and my, you know, I don't think the deal, I think, and that deal was made between the two of them sitting in a room at the Plaza Hotel. So it never quite got papered. Mm. So Al Bell's understanding of it, Al and Clive, I, I've, I haven't ever spoken to Clive, but, and I'm not sure I could get, you could get a true answer out of Clive. <laughs> at but, this point. Yeah. Right, yeah. But, um, but Al's understanding and presumably Clive's understanding were different from what anyone else at Columbia understood. And it was such an unusual agreement. I think Al Bell um, said that they were actually going to be paid for everything they pressed and shipped to Columbia, which seems kind of crazy because if you needed a whole bunch of money, you could press and ship a whole bunch right. of records. Yeah, if he just does a second, a second soul explosion. Yeah, right? exactly. Like, yeah, like, yeah, just yeah, just press anything you can get. Anybody. Yeah. But that's what he's that's what he said and 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 it may very well be that that's what they agreed upon mm-hmm. um, but the people at Columbia were not agreeing to that without it being on paper and um, Stax had a 
difficult time accepting that, including sending its enforcers up there, Johnny Baylor and Dino Woodard, to uh, try to coerce physically, you know, threatening violence mm -hmm. uh, to executives at Columbia. And um, that was a pretty short-sighted move mm -hmm. because anybody who's been threatened <laughs> is not going to, it's highly unlikely they're going to want to keep pursuing this deal. <laughs> yeah. And go, oh yes, we'll pay you for everything we use. Send yeah. us. Not, not what, yeah. Yeah. And that's something uh, has kind of come up. I've done interviews with William. I've talked to Steve Cropper. It's just the... It's sort of like the, for the lack of a better word, like the the mafia element sort of of mm -hmm. the record business really came into stacks in the early the early seventies. Yes, where late sixties. Yeah, yeah. That it's it's becoming more of like guys with guns on the table, and yeah. you know, it's not it's no longer the the high school kids coming in and hanging out and playing drums and you know, hang out at the studio. It's a like, it's a yeah. more menacing. It is. Yeah, it is. And, um, it made a lot of people uncomfortable. Jim Stewart kind of quit going, I think for almost two years, hmm. just didn't go. Right. Yeah. And a lot of the guys like, you know, William Bell said that like, you know, he started working a lot more at like muscle shoals uh -huh. and that kind of thing. Cause right. yeah, he, you, you didn't want to go by the studio, <laughs> um, which is a incredible, statement you know this place that had been basically their playhouse mm -hmm. now they now it becomes not a prison but a kind of like a torture chamber you know we got to go in there to work and these two bad guys and their buddies are going to be in there threatening us i mean uh james alexander from the barcase talked about being in a recording session one night and Johnny Baylor decided he was going to whip James Alexander's ass from the barcase. And so, you know, just for being at stacks that night, James Alexander got an ass whipping, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, there's not many line of work where I think <laughs> you can be at work at night and have somebody just decide to, <laughs> that they're going to beat, beat you up. Yeah. I'll play the blues. The first album of this episode is the sixth Stax LP by one of the three kings of the blues. When eventual Stax president Al Bell took the reins of Stax in the late 60s from Jim Stewart, he envisioned Stax becoming the home for all of black music. So he diversified the label's roster to include gospel groups, black country singers, stand-up comics like Richard Pryor, pastors like Jesse Jackson, jazz performers, and a couple blues artists. The most successful signing, at least in terms of making albums that stand out in the pantheon of their genre, was a blues man in his 40s named Albert King. King ended up on stacks in a chance meeting in the satellite record shop, as Robert Gordon told me. Albert King. Mm -hmm. He's not the only blues artist on stacks. Like they had Little Milton, and mm -hmm. but he <clears throat> becomes like they sort of like re envisioned what the electric blues could be like. Yes with him so like how does he come into the label if you could tell that so you know for starters stacks from the get-go is a soul music label they are you know working r&b in a sort of modern capacity one foot in the 50s and one foot in the 60s you know they begin recording in their final in their you know main home in 5960 so they've got they literally have a foot in each decade but also the influence of the music mm -hmm. is is from both it's it's they are on the cusp of converting r&b to soul so blues may be the root of all that but it's double old-fashioned it's not it's pre r&b you right. know and so these are people who are looking to make music for today and not to, and not any sort of oldie stuff. So blues is not on their list of things to pursue. Estelle, however, in her record store at the front of the of the recording studio, um, sees that people still buy blues. She stocks blues and they sell. So she knows there's a market. Mm -hmm. And one day she looks up and there's Albert King flipping through 45s in the store. So she r rushes over to him and begins talking, finds out he's not with a label and kind of sort of signs him on the spot. You know, uh, it takes a little more work than that. She has to convince everybody that it's worth taking a chance on an established blues man um, 
to put out new sounds. And and Albert brings that um, Arkansas country blues. But he, you know, he's playing a flying V electric. You know, he's he's not like Robert Johnson. He he's, he's got some flash. Yeah, like, he's yeah. got some flash, and he's you know he's really more in a BB King mode than a Charlie Patton mode. Mm-hmm. So he's got and BB's B- um, you know enjoying some rising popularity. He's definitely a star among African Americans, and soon he's touring, opening for the Rolling Stones, and he's, you know, reaching wide audiences, and that's all happening around this time. Mm-hmm. So Estelle says, hey, let's sign Albert King, and they put him in, and with the MGs, or, or whoever behind him, different groups at different times, um, he becomes their leading blues artist mm-hmm. with some great songs. Walks in and has Laundromat Blues at the start, and soon has... Uh, you know, I'll play the blues for you, and mm-hmm. I don't know, just any number of, of yeah. And I'll hits. play the blues, blues for you is the record we're doing here, yeah. And w- which he plays a great version of it, Watt Stacks, right? I yeah, love that. I, yeah. I, I and love I, that record they came out in the same year, so like that he's doing the studio and then is able to do that. La, he's playing his hit at yeah. Watt Stacks, yeah. Right. No, so I'll, I'll um, so Albert King, uh, you know. I was going to say reinvents the blues for stacks. He doesn't, he does for stack. He doesn't reinvent the blues, but he, he reinvent, but at stacks, he reinvigorates their belief in the blues. Right. Yeah. And he sort of, they, they sort of prove that they can like do the, the stack sound on the blues. Yeah. That, yeah. you know, born under a bad sign without the guitar solos is almost just an Otis Redding song, right? <laughs> like, you know, the guitar solos, that guitar kicking you in the face and the opening bars, like mm-hmm. that, that's what makes it an Albert King song. Yeah. But the like, you know, cause William Bell has a version on uh, bound to happen that mm-hmm. like you can hear it as a soul song. That's not this like, you know, kick the door down kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. You know? Good point. Very true. Excuse me. Albert King, who is nicknamed the Velvet Steamroller for the way his vocals could be so smooth and his guitar playing so heavy, had been eking out a career on the margins of the blues and had been touring the South and the Midwest largely by capitalizing on people sometimes confusing him for B.B. King. He even named his distinctive preferred flying V guitar, Lucy, as B.B. King had Lucille, and claimed in some publicity materials to be B.B.'s half-brother. How much of that was Albert's doing, or the nefarious machinations of his management, is debatable. Albert never learned to read or write, as he was born on a cotton plantation and was a cotton picker for most of his early life, stuck in the life of a sharecropper's son. Thanks to his first few records on stacks, King would go on to be one of the most influential, important blues artists of the 20th century, influencing a generation of players that included Stevie Ray Vaughan. King was a prolific performer on stacks through the label's demise. But along with Born Under a Band Sign, the most important album he made at Stax was 1972's I'll Play the Blues for You, an album that blended King's blues with the funky instrumentation of the second incarnation of the Barquets. James Alexander of the Barquets remembers playing with Albert here. So not only do we have Soul Finger in the box set, we also have I'll Play the Blues for You by Albert King. So oh, what was I'm... it like working with Albert? Albert was so Albert was hilarious. I mean, he was just uh he just always keep you laughing in the studio and uh amazing guitar player and just soulful blues voice. He but he was just really uh believe it or not, a lot of people didn't like to work with him because they said he was a grumpy old man, but uh I loved working with Albert King and it uh, you know, playing on some of his records was just really a whole lot of fun mm-hmm. do you have any fun albert stories that you can remember well yeah i went on i went on a gig with albert king one time uh up in a, a town called osceola arkansas okay so um the little amp i had the little you know bass uh amplifier that i had it blew up so he said boy you come over here and plug in with me <laughs> So he had a he had an amp and then you know they had some more inputs on it. So I plugged in when I plugged in and out with him, and we kept the gig going. <laughs> Very nice. Um, 
do you remember like what it was like working on I'll play the blues for you or I know that with like a lot of the like you're doing so many records in that time that like that part of it blurs together a little bit but it was how can I say it it was lovely man mm-hmm. it was lovely you know playing you know playing um you know playing on records with Albert King it was just really a joy it was you know it was not hard at all yeah yeah, I mean, you get to watch one of the best blues guitar players of all time next to you, right? Like, right, well, bassist, yeah. I, I remember being, uh, out, you know, on the road with, with Albert King, and I was amazed that people like Eric Clapton and Jeff Beck and uh, all of these guitar players, you know, that's during the time when they had these, uh, you know, cameras with the big lens on them, the long lens. They have to be taking pictures of Albert King's hands and stuff like that and seeing what <laughs> – you know, the position in their cameras so they could get, you know, to see what, how he, what kind of uh, technique he was using to play the guitar. Because he didn't use a pick. He just played with his, with his fingers. Yeah, his thumb. big thumb, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Unlike a lot of blues men, King was able to weather the changing tides in popular music to make his best music with bands not playing straight blues. I'll Play the Blues for You, the song, became a blues standard and rightfully was inducted into the Blues Hall of Fame. King was never a huge commercial success for Stax, but then again, no other blues man making music then was either. But he'd be the figure most responsible for diversifying the Stax sound outside of the soul that made it famous. Sure, some of the label's jazz artists made fine music, but none of their Stax albums made as much of a mark as King's did. King would perform regularly until his death in 1992 of a sudden heart attack. He was posthumously inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2013, and his albums remain talismans for new generations of blues lovers trying to learn about the three kings of the blues, B.B., Freddie, and Albert. I'll Play the Blues for You is included in Anthology because it shows that while Stax might have been entering its final period of viability in the 70s, it was still releasing important, totemic albums that would define their genres. final album of this episode, and the final album in our box set, is William Bell's Phases of Reality. Bell was a member of the Stax family before there was even a Stax Records. Back when the label was still called Satellite, it released its first big hit, Gee Whiz, by Carla Thomas. The backing vocalists on that hit were arranged by Bell, a local teenager with a doo-wop group who was encouraged by producer Chips Moman to leave the group he was performing with and go solo. His debut single, You Don't Miss Your Water, was the sixth single on the recently rechristened Stacks, and it was a regional hit that put Bell, who was in school to be a doctor, on tour around the U.S. On the cusp of what felt like stardom, one night while on break from touring, Bell was called back to Memphis from New York City by the Tennessee Draft Board. He went back, thinking he'd be able to convince the officers that he was a popular singer with tour dates and could maybe get out of serving. But instead, he was sworn in, put on a bus, and shipped off to basic training. He had to have a relative come and pick up his car from the draft board office. It felt like I almost got kidnapped into going. I didn't have a choice, Bell told me when I interviewed him a few years ago for the liner notes to Vinyl Me Please's reissue of Bell's debut LP, The Soul of a Bell. They snatched me up, said, you're in the military now. You belong to Uncle Sam. And I woke up the next morning at Fort Polk and was like, what is this? What just happened? Bell would be in the military in Hawaii from 1962 to 1965, missing out on the formative early years of Stax, and missing the developments in soul music while in service. He wouldn't release his debut, Soul of a Bell, until 1967, but would release five LPs on the label, including the classic Bound to Happen, which boasts the best soul ballad, in my opinion, of all time, I Forgot to Be Your Lover. In the early 70s, Bell was lost in the shuffle at Stax, 
making adult, relationship-oriented R&B albums, slow jam albums before slow jams existed as a category. In 1972, Bell would try something more audacious when he recorded Phases of Reality, a concept album that addressed societal ills like absent parents and abuse, poverty and the drug addictions prevalent in the early 70s, especially those of returning Vietnam vets. The song that most captures these themes is the raw and stunning $50 Habit. Lord, I just gotta find a way to ease my pain. I've been taken. Bolstered by complex string arrangements, backing choruses, and the Muscle Shoals rhythm section, Phases of Reality is the type of album that didn't exist much at Stacks in those days a widescreen attempt at something different. Bell's beautiful, sonorous voice is the one constant, but everything else is a stylistic left turn. And that's why we chose it for this anthology box set, because it showcases that, despite the label being in its last few years, it was still delivering underrated R&B classics that deserve reappraisal. Phases of Reality might not have been a mega hit, but it's a vital, often stunning album that reminds you that Stax had a lot of gems in their catalog beyond the big hits. Bell would have his biggest hit in the late 70s with Coming Back for More, and its hit single Trying to Love Too for Mercury, and would record intermittently over the next 40 years. In 2016, he returned to the Stax fold with This Is Where I Live, an album that brought Bell the recognition he deserved for a half a century. He won the award for the Best Americana Album at the Grammys. In October, I went to Atlanta to spend time at the Wilby Records office to talk to Mr. Bell about making phases of reality, his songwriting process, and why true love don't come easy. So the last time I was here, uh, which was about two years ago, uh, we talked mostly about the soul of a bell. Um, so today I'm here because we're talking about phases of reality. Um, which we're doing in a big stacks box set. Uh, Phases of Reality will be the eighth album in the box set, so okay. it's like the last one in like this story oh, of stacks. Great, like, yeah. okay. <laughs> um, and so I guess before we get to is that the, apocalypse thing? <laughs> yeah, the apocalypse thing. <laughs> the last one. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, you know, I guess before we get to Phases of Reality, uh, you know, I, we talked a little bit the last time about you know, how you started to feel kind of in like 1969, 1970, that like you're kind of off doing your own thing. Um, and so you made a couple of records, you know, in 1969, 1970, 71, um, the same year that Booker T left the MGs. And you were kind of like one of the last original guys like left at Stax. Uh, did you feel like you had like a lot of creative freedom? Like how did it, how did it feel to be like the, one of the last original guys? Well, kind of isolated, really. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, as, as teenagers, uh, we didn't ever think it would end. So uh, when uh, we saw the writing on the wall, when we were spiraling down, and uh, it was just uh, a weird place to be in at the time, you know, so you you, in, you, you look back on it in retrospect, uh, it, it's just like uh, it was a, a time when you really started to evaluate a lot of things, and um, that was the time that, that really created a lot of um, creative thinking, I think, uh, that's... Uh, the way I would put it, uh, because you really uh, had to figure out, okay, where am I going here, and what am I doing for the rest of my life, you know, so. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, I guess, did you feel like you had, like, a little bit more freedom in the later days of sex? I was given much more freedom, uh, matter of fact, uh, free, free to uh, produce my own album, and uh, I had been working with Booker on some of the production stuff anyway, but mm -hmm. I was not signed as a producer, so I didn't get any credits. But uh, I was given the freedom. Uh, Al Bell said, okay, well, we'll give you a budget and write some songs and bring us a product in. And so that, to me, is like... Uh, 
being released from prison and said, okay, go out and make your way in life, you know. So mm-hmm. that's what I did. Um, so you started sort of recording kind of all around the area. You weren't necessarily just recording in the Stax studio anymore. Uh, like, what, what did you like about going out to Muscle Shoals? Well, I knew most of the guys down there already, but uh, it was, uh, they had kind of the same vibe that we had, which you weren't particularly on the clock. And in working in a studio environment, and especially uh, when you're being creative, it's kind of... Uh, sticky when you have to watch the clock all the time because you you have a creative idea and you want to put that forth and then you were always wondering about how much time do I have do I have it but with uh, Mercer shows and the different studios down at Sea Saint and places that I worked at uh, we had a lot more freedom it's kind of like stacks the guys sat around they learned the songs and put their creative input into it, and we listened to it. And, and then once we thought we had the final groove and the analysis of it, uh, we cut it. I guess now, when you're getting ready to record phases of reality, um, what were you like really thinking about, and what were you like hoping to do with that album versus WOW or Relating, which came after? Uh, during that time, uh, the world was going through a bunch of changes. Uh, you know, the uh, civil rights struggle was still going on and the wars and, uh, and all that stuff was happening. And so I was thinking, not necessarily political, but just worldly mm-hmm. about what is happening with the world and what's going on and uh, what's happening to the kids and all of this thing. And uh, I guess that thought pattern was going around because... Uh, Marvin had what's going on and of course this one came about uh, and I also had to make sure and ensure that I didn't kind of duplicate what he was doing but uh, it's it's all about life during that time Mm -hmm. Um, and I guess how much did you know some of the stuff that you really talk about on this is like you know uh, like overpopulation drug abuse like, how much did uh, you being in the military, like, were you seeing, like, guys, you know, like, the, the, oh, in this yeah. era, there was a lot of, like, drug problems with veterans coming home. Absolutely. Uh, uh, you saw guys that, uh, in my unit, that uh, went over to the front lines, and, uh, of course, they never came back. And, and, and so you kind of uh, look at the situation and try to figure out, why? Why are we there? What are we doing? Are we making a difference? All of that. And uh, then when you get back home uh, stateside, then you've got the drug problems and uh, the civil rights struggle is still going on after all those years through in the 60s. So it was just kind of like contemplating what was happening and trying to draw it all together and, and write about it and and when you're writing like that, it's uh, you want to a lot of people. You want to make them acutely aware, uh, because you have a responsibility as a creator of people like that uh, to kind of inform the public, same as you as writing, you know. And um, so I was trying to say wake up people this is what's happening here you know and and be aware of it kids are dying and and the war is still happening the the guys that are coming back they're on drugs and all of the the situations that were happening back then and then the local crime situation you know and uh, we are all about brother's keeper and this is what we were trying to say Mm -hmm. yeah and you really felt like this was the time to make this album I think so because uh, most of my my albums and and, and uh, singles during that time was all about love and and situations like that. But then you have to get serious about life every now and then, and so this was a, a good time I felt for that. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and this album is sort of like split between 
you know, you're doing some like relationship songs on there with, you know, like true love don't come easy and but then you also have like the very serious Yeah, know, like, fifty dollar habits and yeah, all that. Yeah. Save us and you Save know. Us, yeah. Um you wrote a lot of your own material at Stax, was which was, you know, not always the case for some of the like singers, was you know, they were getting fed songs from you know, any number of songwriters, yourself included. Right. Um, was that ever, like, a thing you had to fight for when you were making your own albums, that, like, I'm going to write my own material, or...? Not really, because uh, they were aware that I was a pretty decent writer, and I had had some success in doing that, not only for myself, but for writing for other people, of course. And so I, I had a pretty much a free hand at that. And Booker and I worked uh, very good together because we had known each other for a long time and our families knew each other mm-hmm. and we grew up together, went to the same church so and the same high school. So we were closely knit there. Mm-hmm. But um, I felt comfortable in, in doing it and they gave me uh, quite a leeway of, of being creative. Sure. Um, so what was your songwriting process like in those days? Uh, the same as it is now. I'd, I'd get an idea in my head and I might kick it around uh, three or four months before I really sit down at a piano or something and try to process it and put it all together, put the puzzle together. And then at some point I've had a couple of songs that uh, I wake up in the middle of the night and the ideas and the lyrics and creativity just come so fast and as fast as I could write or record it on a little recorder or something you know I could barely keep up and mm. so it's a different process sometimes but when you're writing I, I'll initially write something and record it as a demo and then let my ears cool off I'll go back two weeks later listen to it and I usually can always find something. I said, okay, I can substitute that line for this and it'll be stronger or more powerful in the, within the concept of the song. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's a long process for me in, in a writing process. Sometimes it's months before I really sit down and I'm never totally, totally satisfied with what I do. I, if you and, uh, were, why would you keep doing it? Yeah. Yeah, at a point, um, yeah. And sometimes in the studio, everybody says, oh, that's great, blah, blah. Uh, can we do just one more? You know? <laughs> but um, I'm harder on myself than, than anybody, yeah. Yeah, I'm interested. You, so you would write on piano sometimes, at least. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I know more piano. I'm self-taught. I'm left-handed, so I strum guitar enough to be able to write. So, But... Uh, I'm self uh, self taught, uh, but I did study piano and studied music and and theory and all that stuff and uh, all that uh, and had some great uh, jazz coaches and all that when I was with Oman Phineas's band that taught me a lot of stuff about structure and and uh, the creative end of it and how to complete a story in three verses or less, maybe tied in with the bridge, to all of that. So I've had some extensive training. Mm-hmm. In, yes. And you were in the laboratory at Yo, Stacks. Oh, uh, on-the-job right? training was the best at Stacks, yeah. 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 Um, and I guess the other thing, I think the last time I was here, you said, uh, born under a bad sign, you sort of wrote, like, noticing that the Zodiac was, like, a huge news story. Yeah. And that kind of feels sort of similar to this album where... You know, you're taking the news and like using that as inspiration for a new song. It is uh, back in the in the late '60s and '70s, the zodiacal signs and all of that, the zodiacs and things that are big stuff. You know, the first thing you think of in meeting somebody, you ask, "What's your sign?" Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, a lot of it, it's it's not verbatim but it's a lot of similarities there with signs and how people relate to you and Mm -hmm. all of that and so that's when I started writing about all of that Mm -hmm. um do you what do you remember about making this this album like do you remember any specific events um 
I do. Um, I wrote some of the stuff here in Atlanta, here with some writers from my writers' workshop with Wilby here. Mm-hmm. And then we took it to Memphis, and then we took some, I believe, did we take it to Muscle Shoals? Yeah, you're at Muscle Shoals yeah, a little bit, uh, and at Arden to look yeah, too, yeah, with Arden some. So we were able to utilize uh, the different studio and, and, and uh, the quality of them, and it was a little bit different from working at stacks when uh, you pretty much it's like traveling in your house in the dark you know where everything is placed so it's easy mm-hmm. but in a different studio environment with some different ears from the engineers and 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 u- utilizing a few different musicians you got a, a few different takes on stuff but they uh were all great guys, and they knew my history and my creative history, and so they pretty much locked into my concept and everything. Yeah, and this record really has a lot of like complex, like string arrangements and horn parts. Was that stuff that you were overseeing and helping produce? Or? Yeah, partly, yeah. Uh, I'd have somebody to actually chart it out, but mm-hmm. uh, I have a line or something that I would uh, either play a hum to them and they would chart it out. Um, and in creating the song itself, you kind of envision certain dynamic parts and certain intervals and then see where the frequencies will cut through on a certain instrument and everything. And so I usually have all that in the back of my mind when I'm recording. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And given your background, you know, you started sort of at Stax leading the vocal group to, you know, sing in the background of the, the Carl Thomas and Rufus Thomas. You have the sweet inspirations are oh, your yeah. backing group on this record. What was it like working with them, and you awesome. know, what was it like having a group like that at your disposal? Just to... It was just awesome. I uh, I was telling somebody the other day, I remember when Whitney's mom was pregnant with her, you know, because yeah. they did some backup work for me on a couple of projects. And it was just wonderful to work with them. I had been on tour, and I had met a couple of the girls and everything, and so I had... Uh, them and Gene and the Darlings, which was another Stax act, but they did a lot of backup work. Even David and Isaac did some backup stuff on some stuff for me. Uh, so we would all, like family, we would mix it all up, mix it together. At one point, I was on tour, and I came in after a concert, and I laid some tracks down before we left. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> before we left town, and I had uh, the pips on a couple of things <laughs> with me. Yeah, but I've sang on back up on Bunny and Delaney's stuff and and different people's stuff. So I we just mix it all up and do it together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for the cover of Phases of Reality, you said for your debut they kind of gave you a couple options, and you were like, "This one, this one works." How did the cover art work? In 1972. <laughs> well, we were trying to incorporate all of the ingredients of my album, but I didn't want it to be just too abstract, you know, to where. And then with the 60s uh, ending and everything, we wanted to have the artwork that was conducive to that time period, you know, and and make it not just my face on the cover or something. Mm-hmm. And um, so we got with uh, an artwork guy, and I think Deanie and I and somebody else, and just kind of thought about the concept of what's in the album and how we could do it to, without being just blatant over uh, doing it, how to make that all work. And so we, we came up with that kind of uh, sepia mm-hmm. tone quality with, you can see the baby being born and all of the things that's happening and the, the ecological changes and all of that is included in that. And that's what we did. We just worked on it for a minute and then finally... Uh, when we finally saw the final draft, I said, ah, that's it. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. um, you mentioned him a little bit earlier, but like, h- how much was an influence of the concept albums that were sort of happening with Marvin Gaye um, 
I mean, did you, you were having these thoughts on your own, but like, was it like seeing oh. the kind of albums they were making that this was possible? Yeah, uh, concept albums was a thing back in, the, in that time period. Mm -hmm. And uh, I wanted to do a concept album, and uh, that's what I went into it as. Okay, let me talk about life situations now. But and uh, hadn't heard that much of that. Uh, what's going on was just coming out, mm -hmm. so I hadn't heard that much of it. So, and I'm saying. After I started working on some of the songs and everything, and I'm saying, okay, it's the same subject matter, but I'm going to approach it a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll approach it from maybe uh, uh, more of a street standpoint as opposed to uh, an intellectual standpoint, you mm -hmm. know. And that's what I did. I approached it. Strictly street and what was happening with the the, the 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 crime and the drugs and all that stuff. So, mm -hmm. but they were doing uh, things like that. Stevie had I think what what was it? Talking book. I yeah, think came out right songs in, that area. in the key of life yeah, and all that stuff. Red yeah, there, so yeah. and uh, but those were the times that the concept albums were very big then. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, David Porter did one. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. A lot of mm -hmm. a lot of stacks guys. Yeah. Uh, when you were like. This is just, I guess, this guess just for me. But like, when you're writing a song like "True Love Don't Come Easy," like, are you writing about about a specific woman, or is it just uh, uh, not a specific woman? Just uh, writing about my experiences in love, uh -huh. and writing about from observation about, you know, most people they they strive to get a love relationship, but it's never just smooth sailing in love you know mm -hmm. so and you have to realize that and and ride the waves ups and downs of it it's like surfing you you gotta know when to break and when not to mm -hmm. um and that's what i i was trying to say is like okay it never comes easy it uh there's always if it's not jealousy, it's 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 envy. It's it's always some little underlying current that's always going on in love affairs. And not that you don't love the person, but just by being two different separate ent entities and personalities, you know, you're gonna have some problems. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah mm -hmm. my wife would agree. <laughs> <laughs> you really worked very closely with Booker T. And before this album, he left Stax. Was that like a tough thing for you? It was. Um, you know, we, like I said, as kids, we didn't think Stax would ever end. Mm -hmm. And of course, Booker had some issues, and I understood them. But when he left, uh, it was kind of hard, you know, because we had worked and were so successful, successful together. And. Um, I went out to uh, L.A. He moved to L.A. first, mm -hmm. and I went out there and stayed with him a couple of weeks uh, in L.A., but uh, it just was not my vibe out in L.A., but he loved it out there, and so I was always coming to Atlanta, and we both needed a change of scenery because when Stax um, went under, it just took a lot out of us, not only as youngsters, but this is our life, this is our mm -hmm. careers, you know, and a lot of people weren't able, a lot of artists really weren't able to rise up and survive it because uh, they didn't have the creative structure that we had, like write their own songs or produce their own songs. And uh, I was thankful for that, but uh, I moved, Booker moved to L.A., and I had been coming doing concerts in Atlanta, and my management was in Atlanta. So um, I um, came to Atlanta and I stayed in an efficiency apartment for about almost a year. And uh, I fell in love with the city and I still had a home in Memphis. I'm bouncing back every other weekend back to Memphis. And uh, finally, um, I, was, I found out at the end of the year I had spent so much money <laughs> and rent and stuff in the office and, and didn't have any equity in anything, you know. So mm -hmm. I'm saying, okay, I might as well buy a house. So I uh, went with my manager and one weekend and looked around and found this house and bought it. And just 
systematically, it took me about two years to really make the full transition mm -hmm. to Atlantic. I was still holding on. I had a car in Memphis <laughs> and registered. I had a car here <laughs> and bouncing back and forth, you know, but uh, I found it just pulled up uh, all of the uh, stops and moved to Atlanta. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and it just, it, I can't imagine what that had to have been like for all of the artists that... Oh, it was you a know. trying time. It, yeah. it really was because most of the careers were off and running and just starting out, you know. Mm -hmm. And we were young and, and just planning on future, you know, and working at Stacks and keeping hit records going. And all of a sudden, the rug is out from under us. Mm -hmm. And we're going like, okay. Uh, and uh, we could tell that because uh, we hung in there, me and Isaac and David and all. We hung in there for a couple of years in lieu of royalties and everything else so that we could try to, after we left Atlantic, we could try to get up right, you know. Mm -hmm. But uh, after a while, you could kind of feel the downward spiral and see the handwriting on the wall. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, and so, yeah, 1972 was Phases of Reality, and by 75, it, it was over, yeah. yeah. 1972 was also the year of Watt Stacks, the legendary performance by Stacks artists to commemorate the seventh anniversary of the Watts riots in 1965. The show drew more than 100,000 people and lasted for more than seven hours, resulting in a popular concert film and album. But in many ways, that year started Stacks on the path that led them to closing their doors just three short years later, as Robert Gordon told me. The second period of Stacks. Uh, starts sort of it starts in 68 but it like really kicks off, off with a soul explosion in 69 and then you you get to like i guess they have like multiple big stars kind of isaac hayes becomes a big deal yeah the staples they have luther ingram becomes like a really that the, he has a really big hit that's yeah. distributed by they're getting Stacks, yeah. they're, they're getting lots of you know more than one hit wonders but but uh, but big hits, lots of individual big hits, and they've got an, a, a you know a, a pretty respectable stable, which they show off at Watt Stacks, which gets them their deal with Columbia. And it's when they align with Columbia that the problems really begin. So the three kind of forces that come together are they have no money coming in because Columbia ceases their distribution. So if nothing's going to the stores to be sold. There's no money coming into Stacks. At the same time, they've got this overburdened uh, payroll mm -hmm. where in this effort to give people middle-class opportunity, they've overhired and, and overpaid. So you've got no money coming in. You've got lots of money going out. And then your thug, your house thug, Johnny Baylor, gets busted with, I forget, $500,000 in yeah. cash. Briefcase. I think dollars $130,000 in cash. And, and a, a check for 5000 and, and a check for 500000 bucks from Stax Records. They actually, when they bust him at the airport, it's, it's when they're first using... X-ray. Yeah. So he puts his, Hey, we want to x-ray your briefcase. Sure. They put it through. They go, sir, would you open that up? You know? And they think he's a bank robber. They, they, they take Johnny Baylor into an office and they begin calling the cops and around to banks to see who's been robbed. We've caught your bank robber. And that's just basic racism. I mean, anybody who's going to have that much money, I guess is going to get questioned, but to assume the, the way they leapt on the fact that, to be it, a that it was a nefarious, yeah you know, circumstance is t completely racist. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so that draws the attention of the feds who begin to a crackdown of payola and of on stacks in particular of these payments and, and those forces, you know, conspire to take down the company. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I, uh, that I really like liked in your liner notes for the box set was, um, the way you talked about like when stacks closed that it was sort of this like closing of opportunity for a lot of 
people who worked at the label that like that's the story you know there's a lot of artists who like lost their careers after Stax went away mm-hmm. but there's also the sort of like untold story of you know everybody that is worked in the offices yeah you know that like has become like an a and r person without knowing that they're they are an a and r person in some cases and there's not like another label in memphis that is going to hire these people right that like they there was like this huge like the economic impact of it closing in a way like because you think of it a lot of the time as the artistic impact that like the label is gone right no it's a very good point um one of when and so Eventually, Al Bell, once he gets an equity position in the company, um, and once Jim no longer enjoys going there, it's easy for them to make a deal uh, or to or to pursue a deal, which they get with um, Columbia, uh, that quietly buys lets Al buy out Jim, and um, and and one of Al's sort of mo's was to increase middle-class opportunity for African-Americans, a very noble cause. Mm -hmm. And he does it, and he does it well. He actually does it too well, because in my opinion, I think one of the issues that takes down the company is they have a very bloated payroll. And, And that's because Al is trying to give opportunity to as many people who have been denied opportunity Mm -hmm. as he can. Um, and so as the company's going down, all those people who have enjoyed an existence they'd, uh, never imagined would come their way. They see their homes foreclosed, you know, uh, uh, notices nailed to the door, repo men are hauling away cars and furniture and it's a very, um, demeaning and demoralizing situation for all these people it's uh you know it's 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 it is an it is an overlooked sadness of Stax's demise and so Stax closed its doors in 1975 and that's where our story ends for now the label would relaunch in 1978 and close again before opening again in the 2000s bringing back artists like William Bell and Eddie Floyd to record new albums the Stacks building itself fell into disrepair before being turned into a museum, which is where our final episode of this season takes us. If you've made it this long without opening your boxes, my hat's off to you. That part of this journey is complete. We'll see you in a few days for our final episode. This season of the VMP Anthology podcast was executive produced, written, and hosted by me, Andrew Winnestorfer. It's produced by Gabe Harder. This episode's interviews are recorded at American Recording Studio in Memphis with engineering by Jason Gillespie and at Will Be Records in Atlanta with engineering by me, William Bell, and a studio producer over FaceTime. Voiceover is engineered by Jonah Graver. Special thanks to Brad Dunn at American Recording Studio, Robert Gordon, Mr. James Alexander, Larry, and that FaceTime producer who taught me Pro Tools at Will Be Records, Mr. William Bell, and Michelle Smith at Stacks. I sign off like I have all season with this reminder. Listen to more David Porter.